I was was interested in in your journey. Mm -hmm. And so how were you awakened to this going through a structured religion to where you are today? Just kind of how'd your journey unravel, you know, how did it unfold in front of you? Great question. Welcome to the Inner Sanctum online group sessions with Karen Swain. This recording is some highlights from our two to three hour online sessions where I teach deliberate creation each week and once and sometimes twice a month, we invite a guest teacher to share their wisdom and their work. Enjoy the highlights and if you'd like to join us, please go to karenswain.com slash inner sanctum and sign up. So when I explain this to people, I always will try and capture for people like the kind of church I grew up in, uh, my parents' church versus the schools I went to and the church I worked at. Uh, it was it was a huge contrast that created uh, an impact within me that forced me to question like, which God do I believe in? Because my parents' church was We were like super evangelical. We had like revival services all the time, you know, two hour worship services. My dad never preached a hellfire damnation type of sermon. We saw miracles, signs and wonders all the time. Always preached about God is love, God is goodness, compassion, forgiveness. And then I went to ORU, which is very much like, they're not like hellfire brimstone. They were in the seventies for sure. When I went, they were more just kind of evangelical, Pentecostal leaning, but there's a lot of hell talk and rapture talk. It was kind of like, oh, gross, I hate those topics. And then I went to, I got my first church job after graduating at a very fundamentalist church. And they were always talking about hell. Um, I've, I've told this story many times in videos and stuff, but there was like, one of my first experiences there was uh, a woman got up to give an offering testimony, you know, which is where they say like, Oh, you know, I started tithing regularly and then here's how God blessed me. So that's why you should tithe. And she got up to on the stage and uh, a man went behind her and stood behind her with his arms behind his back, looking very stoic. And I was sitting there, I'd never seen this before. And I was kind of thinking like, is that an usher? And they like, you know, protect women here or something. I was like, surely I'm not seeing what I think I'm seeing. And sure enough, I was, which is that this church actually believed and practiced um, some of those passages from like Thessalonians, where Paul talks about how women are inferior to men. It's a shame for women to speak in church. And if they have a question, they should keep silent and ask their husbands at home and all this stuff. And so if they are to speak in church, the husband should stand behind them as they're covering, you know, because women are so sinful and men are so holy. And it was so, I was so like aghast at this experience. I couldn't believe people in this day and age actually did that stuff. So that really made me be like, do I want to be associated here with these people? And the questions just unraveled very quickly from there. Like, do I believe about hell? The rapture is the Bible inerrant or women in, you know, And it was like, no, 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 no. I don't believe in any of this garbage. And so I quit my job because it felt like I was betraying myself every day showing up there and moved back to Oklahoma where I'd gone to college. And uh, at that point, like all bets were off and I could just explore whatever avenues I wanted. And so I had like a closet atheist period for 
maybe like a month, not very long, where I was so convinced, like if I know one thing in the universe is true, it's that that God doesn't exist. And so that made my ego say, well, if I've always been wrong about that God, who have I been talking to all this time? Have I been talking to myself? Am I delusional? Like maybe there is no God. Maybe the atheists are right. And that really scared me because I'd always had such an intimate relationship with God, uh, such a love relationship with God that I started looking into near-death experiences because I felt like, man, if anyone has the answers to life, they probably do. And um, as you probably know, it was like, oh, wow, what a relief. They are saying that there's some source that they experience, pure light, pure love, non-judgment. Oh, I like that. That sounds really great. So then I had um, a positive spin on God that I could take into, you know, Taoism, Hinduism, Buddhism. And I just started reading all kinds of stuff and allowing my, I'd always been Western in my approach to God and spending, you know, five to seven years heavily in the Eastern traditions was really what my soul needed because in the church, what the, what Christianity does really well is the bhakti aspect of like devotion, love to God's worship and service, but they don't have any of their theology, right? Like it's super messed up. And the Eastern for the most part is sort of the opposite. Um, Hinduism has the most like devotion to the self, but like Buddhism, Taoism are very much like rational approaches, pure awareness, you know, they don't talk about God ever. So I needed that to sort of like figure out my theology and get the wisdom component. And then probably about four, three, four years ago, um, something in my heart was like, I'm still missing something though. Like I have all this wisdom, self-knowledge. That's great. I feel some peace from that, but I feel still empty inside. And then there was this, like, it dawned on me like, oh yeah, <laughs> I used to love God. Like you can love God. Oh yeah. And so I sort of married the two, the bhakti and the jnana. And that, that to me was the, like the secret recipe to get me to where I am today. I had found a lot of what I felt were really satisfying answers to the questions that like, like a questioning Christian asks, like, well, if there is no hell, then is God just like, they're so locked into this one reference frame of thinking that it's hard for them to, like, it was really hard for me to get out of. Like, if the Bible's not inerrant, then is God good? Like, that was really questions I was asking. It's like coming out of a cult where you've been brainwashed your whole life. So I found through that seeking, I found a lot of answers to those questions that, uh, you know, didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like you, you don't have to hate the Bible to not believe it's literal or God wrote it with a feather pen or something like those aren't um, contradicting viewpoints. You can have a reverence, a love for the scriptures without believing that God forced someone to write it through them or, or whatever. Um, you can understand that God doesn't torture people, but yes, there's still justice or karma. Right. And so I just started making videos like that and, you know, attracting lots of people who are like, Oh my gosh, thank you. I've been always asking these questions, but never could I hear someone explain it this way. And very soon, like less than a year of, of doing that. Um, I had kind of moved on from that. It just didn't resonate anymore. And I was hungry for deeper stuff and got more into law of one ACIM and, um, understanding the, the mind and all of those things. But I still, yes, have many people who still find me through the, uh, the series is called moving backwards. They find me through those videos and say, oh, you helped me so much. 
I get lots of DMs about that, which always touches me because I, the part of me that lived that lifestyle and was at that point of being horrified at this, this precipice of like, okay, I'm not a Christian, but like, ah, everything else is scary. And it's like, you don't have to be afraid. There's nothing, this is your father's world. You know, there's nothing to fear. You just have to see it a different way. I was saying that she's like, why do I feel like I need to fix people? Like get into a relationship where I feel like, you know, I, I need to contribute. I need to fix people. And I said, ah, oh, that's just the healer in you. You know, when you're not practicing, when you're not being a, a healer professionally or a teacher, you do it in your relationship. And once you fulfill your role mm-hmm. as a teacher or a healer in life, you no longer feel like you need to attract a relationship to do that. So you can, you can ask a different question. Like you can, you can choose a different desire. So what is it that I want from this relationship? I don't want to fix someone or change someone or transform them or teach them. Uh, I want to attract a partnership that where we can do that together. Like we can help each other do that for others. Like, help me help others and I can help you help others. So it's a different asking. Do you find that Aaron? Oh yes. Um, in relationships, what I've found through my own growth is that once I got to a place of being, you know, more or less triggerless with the big relationship issues that used to trigger me so much. Um, I all need to point out my partner's, you know, blind spots or whatever just dropped away and I can totally have space for her to have some kind of, you know, lack of awareness in some area, some mental tendency or something that used to maybe in a past relationship would just grate on me. And I would have to point it out and stuff and be the spiritual, you know, superiority complex. And because I'm not triggered by those things anymore, there's just compassion and there's just grace and like space. And sometimes intuition leads you to give a gentle nudge or pointer that might help them become more aware, but it's like, I have, I have compassion and space for my own blindness. So why can't I extend that to someone else? And it really does become effortless. Once you're in a space where you're free from being triggered by your partner. Yeah. I I guess if you're getting triggered by your partner or by anyone, it's really pointing to what you're not looking at in yourself or you're not seeing, or you're not dealing with in yourself. Like all relationships are a reflection of self really, aren't they? Yeah, well, that's exactly it. It's like you have this realization at some point of like, why do I have the right to point out my partner's blindness when I'm getting triggered myself? Like take the plank out of your own eye first type of thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, great question. It is um, both because a social memory complex does not necessarily mean there's no individuality left or like there's just one sort of person but it's like let's say that everybody in this group we are all a part of a social memory complex we're all sixth density beings well that just means that we share the the same information and database if you think of like an overmind we're all we have access to that overmind that sort of computer analog of everyone's memories everyone's knowledge experience and so forth but we each are still an individual soul, still on a journey of evolution. So each one of us individually in the memory complex is doing that turning backwards in time and guiding our previous incarnations. But each of us is also a part of a social memory complex. So the, the memory complex is not the higher self, but the higher selves are a part of the memory complex. Mm. How did you find that out? That's so fascinating. Say that again. The memory complex 
is not the higher self, but the higher right. self is a part of the memory complex. Yes. So is that written in the law of one? Um, not that exact statement, but in asking many questions about the higher self, uh, one of the things Ra explains is that every soul is retains its own individual journey back to the allness of the creator all the way through seventh density. But the totality of that individual just grows and grows as it has more lifetimes and more knowledge and experience. So the memory complex serves as um, like a planet becomes its own entity as it evolves because a social memory complex is a planetary civilization, basically. So Ra is, you could think of Ra as Venus, actually. When you see the word Ra, you can replace it with Venus. Every being that lived on Venus that graduated to a positive polarity and stayed in that civilization is a part of Ra. So, so like I could be on some other planet across the galaxy and someone might ask me a question about Karen and I can speak as I'm Karen, as if I'm Karen, because I have the total access to your mind as the same as you do, but you're on another planet somewhere else, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Oh, it's pretty so cool. Juicy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause these are questions I've been asking my mob and they've been trying to explain it to me, to my puny human mind. Um, because, you know, I like, I'm, who are you? And they've said to me, if you can imagine, because uh, it's not just one planet, but it, the combination of everything that has been learned from everybody, it's like a combination of wisdom, they've said. Yeah. You know, we're not identity. We're a combination of wisdom uh, that it's not everything in, in the all. It's not the all and the everything. It's just that is focused in this evolutionary process in the universe that is that is connected in this evolutionary process it's so hard to explain yeah uh, because well, if you want me to really trip go, your circuits i can give you another one <laughs> go go for it go for it <laughs> so there's this other very um esoteric concept in the law of one that's only touched on like one or two times called the mind body spirit complex totality right so mind body spirit complex is raw's term for like each one of us we're a complex of a mind and a body and a spirit. And you have to have all three components in manifestation. So even through seventh density, Ross says you have some kind of body vehicle still, but it's pure light at that point. But uh, the higher self also has a kind of higher self, not in the same way. And Ra emphasizes like, this is totally impossible to describe in your language. This would have no meaning for you if I even tried. But the idea is like, the mind, body, spirit totality is your soul's essence. If you think about, you know, at the end of seventh density, when that soul finally merges back with the creator and becomes the all being again, if you could freeze time at the last nanosecond of that last blip of seventh density before you merge, like that's the mind, body, spirit complex totality, like the final completed version of your soul. So it's even far beyond the higher self, right? The whole density and the half beyond that. And Ra hints at the idea that the higher self can also pull from that or learn from that or communicate with that totality in some way. Mm -hmm. If it needs help or guidance, 
Um, but it doesn't look the same as our relationship to the higher self, but yeah, it's, it's just incredible how far creation goes just beyond our imagination. Absolutely. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. Cause that's answered some, you know, that's answering some questions that I've had for the, my mob that when they've, when I've asked them, because the thing is that they never tell me anything I don't ask. So I have to ask. So I've asked <laughs> and they've tried to explain it to me. And I get it. I do get it, but I don't get it. I go, uh-huh, I get it. But yeah, when you say it's beyond what the mind can comprehend, I think that to really get it, I have to like be there. I have to be out of this human mind body. So Jen, did you have any more questions? We've got humans here who are wanderers and they are waking up to that um, understanding and they're able to start tapping into higher fields of consciousness because that's what they've came here to do have they got mm -hmm. access to that social memory complex consciousness to call on yes mm -hmm. yes is the short answer but they have to essentially pierce the veil as Ra would say before they can have that communication and even after piercing the veil it's still not the same kind of communication that like a fourth density being could have where there's no veil at all and it's like total total access to um other dimensions and the astral planes and stuff uh in third density any soul that comes here has to play by the rules of third density so you you assume the form of a person just like any other third density soul would and abide by all the same rules but if you're like a sixth density being then you're carrying a much higher vibration which means your likelihood of remembering Oh, I'm from elsewhere. I'm a soul who came here on a journey of evolution. This body's not me. I'm an eternal spirit. You're probably going to recognize that much easier than a native third density soul would. Um, but not all six density wanderers do make that recognition. Um, Ross says a lot, you know, some of them get lost in the maelstrom here in third density and get karmically involved. So there's no guarantees of anything. It's just a probability and your soul kind of weighs that probability before it incarnates. It says, okay, here's what I need to get out of this. I'm looking for a lot of wisdom uh, for my soul's evolution. So third density can give me that. Yeah, there's a risk I might get involved, but I think I'm good. I think I got this. And then let's find out. So like everything in creation is an experiment. Every star system, every planet, every person, the outcome is not known before the experiment is played out basically. Sure. Beautiful. Ra's explanation of um, being in contact with the higher self and, and guides as well. Ra, Ra states in a few, er, a few areas of the text that we also have guides in addition to our higher self that we can pull on. Um, the law of one got me really interested in Stephen Greer's work of uh, the CE5 meditations. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So Karen's like giving the thumbs up. <laughs> um, Stephen Greer is a UFO, ufologist, maybe a researcher, pioneer. And he came up with this uh, meditation called, it's called CE5. It stands for close encounters of the fifth kind. And so each, each type represents a different kind of contact. Um, Close encounter of the third kind, as we know, represents like an actual physical contact with an extraterrestrial. Um, close encounter of the fourth kind, I believe, is 
some kind of sighting of evidence of an extraterrestrial, like a crop circle is a close encounter of the fourth kind, or maybe an, an orb or something like that. Close encounter of the fifth kind is when a human being initiates contact with an extraterrestrial uh, through telepathy or channeling. So his method is to, he, he likes to do it in groups because it's more powerful effect, but I've done this three times and, and all three times I've done it, um, I've had a, a UFO sighting, not that day, but either the following day or the following week. You sit down, meditate, get into the field of consciousness, and you basically let your intuition guide you to sensing a presence in some space above you of maybe an extraterrestrial. So you just lock onto a feeling you have, and then you send a message of basically just like love and light in that direction and say, hi, uh, welcome to my planet. I'd like to have contact with you. Um, I'd like to communicate with you. And then he says, if you can visualize where you are, like on a map, so I'll visualize the map of the United States and sort of like a Google Maps, you could zoom in on Colorado and then on Denver and you show here's where I am. Um, then they come to you and they show up in the skies. And uh, that's exactly what happened, what has happened. So through that practice, um, I started thinking, well, if I can do this so successfully, why not communicate with guides? or higher self. So then in certain life situations that have come up where I feel like I need some help or some guidance, I'll just tune in to the field of consciousness and just send a request to, Hey, whoever my guides are, give me some help. What should I do? And I'll feel some kind of powerful intuitive direction. And then I just follow it without thinking about it. And have been really amazed at um, the events that have unfolded as a result of that. And then even subtler than that, just day to day, like tuning into my intuition. Once you're kind of aware that you have this um, unbounded intelligence within you, it's kind of like the most interesting thing going on, right? So it's to your benefit to get familiar with it. Yeah, that's a fun question. Yeah, I find everything that, that all the red letters like are so in alignment with really any spiritual teaching, but surely ACIM, uh, law of one ACIM is, you know, really kind of borrows the language of the gospels, um, as you might know, but to answer your question, my favorite verse as a kid was always Matthew seven, seven, ask, sure. and it will be given to you seek, and you will find knock and the door will be open to you for anyone yeah. who asks receives anyone who seeks will find. And to anyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Yes. So yep. as a kid, I didn't, that was always the verse I could um, remember the easiest to get the gummy worm or whatever Yes. <laughs> in kids church, but I didn't really like know exactly what it was pointing to until I left Christianity, which is true for most Bible verses actually. Yes. And I started to rec recognize that it's totally a law of attraction verse yep. or teaching. And um, yeah, it's, I, I've found it always to be it's one of those teachings or truths that just keeps deepening as you deepen with it, you know, mm -hmm. ask and it will be given. It's like not asking from a place of selfishness or for personal gain, but asking from a place of, of universal gain, like whether it's, you know, our own self-awareness becomes a gift we give to everyone. So what I found is like, whenever I ask for insight or self-knowledge, like 
God is so eager to answer that request and show me what I'm looking for. Because again, it just benefits everyone. The more light I have, the more light I can share. Um, but then even attracting physical things in the world, experiences, objects. I find that whenever you ask from a place of like, how can this benefit the world or others? It's like always immediately given. But whenever there's, and you can use law of attraction for selfish gain, of course. But I've found that trying to ask for things from a place of ego, it's almost like source can't hear it because ego doesn't exist. So it's like, nobody's even asking this. But when you ask from a real place, the Christ, um, the true nature, those requests are always granted. So like the teaching is really pointing you to like you, the Christ and you, if you ask, it's always given because how much does, you know, like Jesus said, a good father loves to give good gifts to his children. Like those two concepts really marry each other. Yeah. When you're really in alignment, the line between, am I asking or is this being given to me or told to me or directed to me gets really blurry and it feels more like, yeah, I'm, I'm always just kind of in this receiving mode. Like source lets me know, here's what, here's the next experience for you. And old me before I was more aware of my true nature would think, oh, I came up with this desire and I'm going to ask for it. But you're very right. It's, you get more into a mode of just declaring because you know, it's in alignment with your soul's path. And it, yeah, it's such a place of empowerment. Yes. I think the question is rather why the fears are stopping us. Why do fears why do we stop let us? them stop us? Mm, good question. Why do we let fear stop us? Well, fear is the memory of pain. And desire and fear are sort of the ego's two uh, linchpins to keep you identified. So fear is identification, in a sense, with the wrong self, with the limited self separate self. So that's just kind of ego's goal is to keep you always bound to the separate self, keep you in lack and fear does that really well. So all you can really do is, is question the one who's afraid, who, who's afraid, who has this fear? Is it my true nature? Is my true nature afraid? Well, surely not. So who is it? What's well, this idea of myself, this limited character that my ego tells me I am that's the self who's afraid because that's the self who's vulnerable. That's the self who's limited, who needs to defend itself, protect itself at all times. So it's just evidence of a misplaced identity. You could look at it that way. Mm, beautifully said evidence of a misplaced identity, which is how we operate on planet earth. We misplace our identity. We place our identity on the ego self, which desires, which is rooted in, in lack and separateness and mm -hmm. we say this is me this is me the asker this is me the one that feels lack this is me the one that feels un unworthy this is me the one that is afraid so all stressful thoughts is misplaced identity wouldn't you say every stressful thought bingo it's like you are the one reality the only reality so then how do these illusions of the mind, fear and whatnot appear to be so real if they're not real. Obviously, they only appear to be real because they're borrowing reality from that which is real. That's you. So they, they borrow your belief in them. So it's like we're giving our reality away to illusions all the time. 
those illusions are ego, separate self. And so the mistake we make oftentimes is to try and argue with the illusion, argue with the fear. Here's why I shouldn't be afraid, blah, 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 et cetera. And really ego wants you to do that because even that's still giving it reality, right? Do you argue with a ghost? Do you chase after a mirage? No, right? So truthfully, you can only question the illusion. You can only question the mirage. And uh, in in the self-investigation, the truth of who you are is revealed. Yes, that is so true. And there's so much healing that is rooted in that um what did you call it that uh that argument self-inquiry well not so yeah self-inquiry but the argument like so just even on my own journey and i see it with many others so we've got this stressful thought so i recognize i've got this stressful thought now how am i going to get over this stressful thought it was exactly what vladi asked how am i going to alleviate my fear how am I going to get over my fear so we're arguing with it and as we do as we say I need to get over you I need to heal you I need to stop you you actually bring it more into reality you're I yeah with it as your reality and you're bringing it more into your reality and so there's this loop going on I want to fix myself I want to heal myself but I can't but I can't yes because we're you're on the hamster wheel right yeah. 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 Of course, the miracles says illusions disappear when they are recognized for what they are. Right. This is the healing and the remedy. Believe them not and they are gone. Right. How do you disbelieve a thought that you believe? Mm-hmm. Well, at the expense of sounding redundant, <laughs> uh, question the one who believes it. Because the thought will always reinforce itself. Like a thought is a point of view in a sense. A thought is like one of the infinite possibilities in the universe, one of the infinite points of view that you can take up. But all, all points of view are untrue. Only the one reality itself is true. So this is how the mind becomes impure, is by taking the world to be real. When the world's just a reflection, right? It's just a reflection of consciousness. Everything exists to reflect consciousness. You don't look in a mirror and think the reflection's you. You know, it's just a reflection of you. So if like, if you uh, look at your hair in the mirror and your hair's all disheveled and you need to make your hair look good, you don't try to change the reflection, right? You know, the reflection doesn't exist. I have to change my own hair. It's like, you have to do that with the mind as well. Thoughts are just reflecting. They're not real. They're not true. So question the one who believes the thought, self-inquiry. Oh, so good. Yeah, I, I am that is still a concession to one who doesn't fully realize it yet. Because one who is fully realized doesn't need to say I am that. Um, unless they're teaching it to someone else who doesn't believe it. Um, the self is always realized as Ramana Maharshi would say. And this is, this is super obvious, right? Like no one ever questions I am or their own existence. Like if you, from the beginning of time, of, from, from the beginning of human existence, when um, whether it's political authorities or police or, or, Whoever you go to when you have a problem, someone's missing, someone was kidnapped, 
Um, my, my, my wife is kidnapped. My daughter, my son has been kidnapped. No one's ever come to an authority and said, I've been kidnapped. I'm missing. Help me find myself because nobody needs to find themselves. Right? We all know I am. It's the most natural knowledge, ungiven knowledge. So, for that reason, Ramana would always say, The self's always realized, but it's like one of those things where it's, it's so close to you that there's no room to see it. So, it takes so much inward introspection to find what's the most original, natural thing. That's kind of the paradox is when you find it, the recognition is, Oh, yeah, no, this has always been what I am. It's, it's really not even a discovery in a sense. So I am that, you know, we have to, if we're using words to describe it, words are very limited. So you can say it from a place of realization, but it's really a pointer for the mind. Uh, if we give it a name, the mind will idolize it. It'll pedestalize it. God, Brahman, Krishna, Christ, so for that reason, these non-dual non traditions will make it as nameless as possible because it's that one ground of existence, ground of being we all share. So I am that is what that's pointing to. Yeah, another way you could look at it is I am is the way that consciousness sort of like announces itself or it knows itself as this feeling of I, the subject. So I is always the subject and everyone under the sound of my voice only ever knows or ever can know what it's like to be the subject. You never can know what it's like to be an object, if that makes sense. So I am refers to that. I am the eternal subject, maybe the universal ego, the universal I. And ego is that mechanism of the mind that takes that sense that we all have of I exist, I am, and then it attaches it to objects, identifies with objects. But really the I is always pure and universal. It, ref it refers to nothing in particular because it is everything. So the I, the true I is the nameless I, um, the silent I that doesn't claim anything. Self-shining. <laughs> yeah, the, somebody asked me in some interview at one point, what's, how would you define consciousness or what is, what does consciousness mean to you? And after uh, a few moments of sitting with it, the only answer that felt right to say, because anything is wrong ultimately, but the only thing that felt right to say was infinite possibility. Consciousness is infinite possibility. So I is infinite possibility. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's all about experiencing it because in the same way that when you watch a movie, uh, once you've seen a movie, you can't ever watch it again the same way because you already know everything that's going to happen. So the rising action doesn't make you as excited as before. The twist doesn't twist you anymore. Uh, you see it all coming. You know it all is going to happen. So, and then each time you watch the movie, it gets more and more like nauseating to have to sit through it. And that's very much the way the mind is. Once you become aware of, in the Indian tradition, it's called vasanas. You probably heard me teach on this, mental tendencies. Uh, it, it's another way of saying my programming. 
So the mind has been conditioned by life to respond to stimulus a certain way every time. And the mind is a very complex computer program. So it has, you know, thousands of responses available to it. But you, if you tune into it, you start to recognize the automatic responses of the mind. And you're like, oh yeah, I always kind of respond this way when someone does this to me, or when I'm around that person, I always shape shift into this character or that, you know, and you start to notice it and it starts to annoy you a bit. Um, it's, it's sort of weird to say this, but healing for me, purifying my mind has happened through this process of like, almost like pain. I, I use the word embarrassment. Some, sometimes when, when you see, when awareness catches a program that it was bound to, there's sort of a feeling of like, oh gosh, I hate, I don't like that. I don't want to be stuck in that role anymore. And I've learned to embrace that feeling of like, oh, there I go again, type of thing. It's not, it's not a guilt trip, but it's like your true nature is so free and unbounded that it's so painful to see how bound you are. And that seeing is actually what liberates you and breaks you out of the program is in the same way, like a breakup happens or something. If you're being abused by a partner, you know, you take it, you take it, you take it, you take it, but the shell starts to crack. And at some point you can't take it anymore. And you're like, you're not going to talk to me that way anymore. And you just snap and you have absolutely zero patience left for them to treat you that way. And you either leave or you kick them out or whatever. It's identical to the way you break up with programs in your mind. You just see them so often and the pain of seeing that you're stuck in this role that you don't want to be in, that your soul knows it's free. And yet you seem to be locked in this prison. Like that's enlightenment. It's like questioning the prison of ideas I've built around myself until the prison bars fade away. So when I say experience it, we learn about oneness. We learn about, I am, I am the field of consciousness, you know, Oh, what a great idea. And our soul says yes to it, but all those programs are still running and saying, no, you're not. You're definitely this person with all these desires and fears and problems. And it's trying to keep you stuck in that role. And so, yeah, the more you are aware, I'm not that, the more viciously the mind will fight against you to keep you bound to it. So awareness in the mind seemingly get in this bit of a tug of war for a while. And the fastest way to, if we could say, speed up the process is to stoke the flames of my desire to be free. And this is told in every you know, every ancient master, every teaching and every religion points to this in one way or another, like the desire for liberation is the number one ingredient. If you want it bad enough, you, you can break through the mind that quickly in the same way that when you're sick enough of an abusive partner, you're willing to cut whatever losses. You can have the house, you can have this, you can have that. I'm done with you. It's sort of like that with the mind. The more you fall in love with your true nature, falling in love with freedom, freedom is my true nature, then yeah, the, the mind stops being an enemy and you realize there's actually nobody there. No one's keeping me bound. I've always been free. It was just due to my own ignorance that I thought I was something else. And when that shift in awareness happens, yeah, you can start having so much compassion for the mind because you're like, yeah, the mind doesn't know. It doesn't know what I am. It's not trying to keep me bound. Like it's just doing what it's programmed to do. It was designed to be this way by evolution. So it's not my enemy at all. And this is why like loving God, loving freedom, loving your true nature is that is the, the golden ticket.
because you can't, you can't like break up with the mind unless you see something greater, unless you see a greener pasture awaiting you, like something to fall in love with, something to long for, something more beautiful, more wonderful to capture your attention. And you just begin to go for that. And in going for that, that's the discovery that the mind doesn't exist. That's not what I am. I am that which I'm in love with. Like that is me. I am that. And then yes, the mind, there's nothing left but compassion for it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm coming back to the analogy of the artist because the higher self or the whatever part of us, I don't know, after our discussion about the higher self, I'm even more confused than ever, but I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) There was a part of us that completely designed the ego aspect of ourself and the mind and completely designed, like created what we want to play with in this dimension. Uh, we choose our parents, we know how they believe, we choose our religions, we choose our social, you know, we're choosing it from a soul's perspective, we're choosing it. And so once you identify that everything you're going through that you're trying to get over, you've chosen. It's a bit like your mirror analogy. So you're the, you've painted this painting and now you're arguing with the painting and saying, this is, I don't like you. I don't like right. you. Go away. I don't like you. But you're not the painting. You're the creator of the painting. Just like you said, you're not the reflection in the mirror. So, yeah. So you coming back to, I've created this. Once you take complete and absolute responsibility that for everything that you go through, you've created this on some level, maybe from not an ego's perspective, like you would never say, I want to experience loss or drama or sickness like you would never say that from an ego's perspective but from a soul's perspective yeah we've designed it so once you take responsibility that i've created i've created this i'm the creator of this it ceases to have power over you don't you think Aaron? absolutely yeah like zoom out your perspective right vladdy in your last conversation we were told that originally the mind serves the heart not the other way around that we as humans made it the other way around. I wonder what Aaron feels about that. Yeah, this is an interesting topic because it gets into the densities a lot in my mind. Uh, If if we give a definition to what do we mean when we say the heart, uh, heart, at least in the uh, Advaita tradition is like another word for the self, the original self, the universal self, the I, the I am. And before self-awareness happens, the the mind is sort of protecting that the mind becomes the uh, what's the word I'm looking for. Um, The guardian of the heart, so to speak, meaning the evolutionary programs that are designed, look out for number ones, fight to get to the top survival of the fittest. Um, This is basically what the ego is. And until self-awareness happens, when the I, I am sort of breaks out of the eggshell and realizes, Oh, I am all of this is me. I'm a soul on a journey of evolution. Now I can take the reins over until that happens. The mind has to be kind of like the autopilot. So second density is the animal nature where it's just Darwinian evolution, right? Survival of the fittest. And so even though like the lion kills the gazelle and eats the gazelle, there's no self-awareness in the lion. It's pure instinct. It's just trying to survive. There's nothing personal about it. It doesn't hate the gazelle. Um, third density is where self-awareness evolves, where consciousness 
begins to have this intuitive understanding of I am a separate entity from the environment. Um, now I can think about my past and my future. And this is what creates ego. We work through third density to get to the fourth density, which is where the eye of the heart is finally liberated completely. And it can take the driver's seat for itself now. So that transition happens through, through self-awareness in third density. And then the heart can sort of be the captain of the ship. Until that happens, the mind has to be the captain of the ship because in a sense, the heart is still kind of asleep. It hasn't woken up to its true nature yet. So the mind, which is why, like Karen says, you can't hate the mind. You can't make it an enemy. It's doing its best to protect you. But as the heart slowly wakes up and it's like, whoa, what are all these programs I'm stuck in? You know, it has to penetrate through those through self-awareness. And that's what spiritual growth is. That's what spiritual practice is for. Really good. Thank you so much. Sounds to me like it's likely a soul lesson that you chose because and this is a very subtle one, but the separate self is always looking to preserve itself and understand itself, know itself through a form of some kind. And a home is one of those things like I belong here, but of course you are the universal self. And so every, anywhere you are should feel like home to you. This is, this is your universe, right? And that's a catalyst that has become apparent to me as well in being in certain situations or even just being um, somewhere like in a, I don't know, bad neighborhood, a dark alley. And there's this, Ooh, let me get out of here. I don't like it here. I started to notice that some, that resistance is the separate self. Now I can still have the intuition of, Oh, this is an unsafe area for me to be in. I should probably get somewhere else, but not this feeling of resistance towards where I am. And that can play out in where you live. If you move somewhere, I just don't feel at home here. Well, that's the separate self crying out to feel protected in some way. So use that as a catalyst, right? Begin to become aware of that voice of, I don't feel like I'm home. Who doesn't feel like it's not home? I am the universe. Like I, anywhere I go is home type of thing. <laughs> Ego is only the act of being identified. Ego is like, I've heard the analogy, like the clown that comes out at the end of the play and takes a bow, but the, the clown was never in the play. The, the ego's like that. It'll, a desire comes up and then the ego will see it and claim it as my desire. Well, yeah, I want to ski because I want to get away from this horrible place because I'll be more enhanced if I'm skiing than if I'm here in this desert. So the mind will play with that desire. So you just ignore that stuff. That's not, God clearly has no resistance to his own creation. The desire itself is God speaking. There's no, there's it, like when the universe moves, it just moves. It doesn't explain itself. It doesn't roll out a red carpet with trumpets. Like it just moves and you just follow it. And that's called being in the flow. Yeah. Yeah. I remember once uh, when I was in my thirties working as an energy healer and a single mom, and I'm really struggling in the city and I wanted to move up to Byron Bay. Have you heard of Byron Bay, Erin? No, I haven't. It's a place in Australia, which is very much like, I suppose, Shasta or Sedona. It, it attracts a mm. lot of um, light weavers. Light weavers. It's an amazing place. It's a vortex place. It's pristinely beautiful. Anyway, there's a whole area. Byron Bay is just a little town, but there's a whole area around it. It's just beautiful. And it, I've got a lot of friends that live up there, a lot of communities starting up there. And so I was determined to move up there. And um, 
I was looking, I went up there on holiday and I was looking and then my guides asked me a question. Are you wanting to move away from the city because you're running from something or are you running to something? Because if you're running from something, you're going to take it with you. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I had to really think about that. And I thought, no, I'm definitely running from, I'm trying to run from the struggle of making money. I'm trying to run from the expensiveness of the city. I'm running from the noise of the city, the craziness of the city. Yes, there was like desire to be around more like-minded and, you know, in a beautiful environment. But the bigger urge was to run from than to run to. And I thought, if I'm running from something, then I need to stay and sort it out. That's how I came yeah. Yeah, that's great way of looking at it. Yeah. Say that again. I said, pain is here to wake us up. This is why we become depressed or suicidal or any pain we experience in life is because we are making the dream real. And this is one of the kind of pinnacle teachings of A Course in Miracles is like the mind can only think these thoughts because it's making the dream real. It thinks the dream is real. And no matter what happens in your dreams at night, if you lose a loved one in your dream upon waking, what happens? Oh, just a dream never really happened. And it's like, but that's always what's happening because consciousness, what we are is formless and eternal. So all it can do is dream. So it dreams these experiences at different density levels. Like this is a denser dream for sure, but it's just a dream. All of us, every body sitting in this call is has an expiration date. So like just really sitting with that for a moment, you can start to tune into this fact that like, yeah, it's not real. It's just a temporary appearance in consciousness. Like that's not really my dad. I'm not really her, his wife. That's not really my daughter. We're all just souls playing roles. And when you know that you just, it's just pure love for everyone and everything. So whenever there's sadness, depression, pain, the inquiry is like, where am I making the dream real? Where have I forgotten who I am, that I'm an eternal being? And that this is just a play in consciousness to help me learn about myself, wake up to who I am. It's like, if, if we take it seriously, we suffer. And that suffering is kind of like the guidance system the source has built to ensure that we can't stray too far away from the remembrance of who we are. It's too painful. At some point, we have to turn around and abandon the world of form I'm not this person. I'm not that character. You know, this is not who I am. And when we realize that there's just so much peace and happiness that comes from it. And that's how, you know, it's truth. Your emotional guidance system always points you to truth. If it hurts, that's because it's not true. If it feels good, if it feels liberating, that's because it's true. Right. Once you live outside of the world of illusion, everyone that is entrenched in the world of illusion will point at you and try and bring you back into this world because you yep. seem like an alien to them, you know, and this is what we talk about in this community that your friends and family think you're woo woo and think you're crazy and you believe in all this stuff and they reject you and they judge you. And now the lesson is how do I deal with that? So that's a lesson in itself. Like how do I deal with being rejected and judged by my peers and my friends and my girlfriends that I went to school with that think I'm just too damn crazy. They don't want to go out to dinner with me anymore because that we, we don't live in the same world, right? Mm -mm. So we're straddling the world of soul or spirit or God 
and and being the artist, being the creator in this play of life, in the Leela, in the dance, mm-hmm. and they're well and truly entrenched in this being the truth of reality. And, and there's certain rules, like if people die, you cry, right? You <laughs> cry, <laughs> you- damn it. Cry, damn it. Yeah, because if you don't cry, then you're not a compassionate, loving person. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're not as woke as me. Yeah. <laughs> what does woke mean now? I'm so confused. This word woke has been somebody's... Ta- what does woke mean these days? It used to mean awaken, but it means something else now. Like the word Karen means an angry person. <laughs> <laughs> and you're the most delightful person. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm a Karen, not a Karen. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Yeah. I no, was no. Say, I'm offended on your behalf. <laughs> what does woke mean? I don't understand what woke means anymore. Well, it, it means the opposite of what it should mean now. But by the ones who coined themselves as being woke, they mean it to be oh, I'm more awakened to truth than you are. But of course, the without taking the plank out of your own eye, you become that which you hate. So the woke wokesters have sort of turned into the very thing that they despised, right? Which means they're not actually awake. So it's all a paradox at this point. What can you do but laugh? (laughs) I was was thinking when um, Kristen was talking about people being upset at you for like other dream characters are getting upset at you for waking up in the dream. You should be in the dream like we are. There's a, this amazing interview with Byron Katie on Oprah yes. <clears throat> from 2008, I believe. And um, Oprah's questioning Byron about her awakening and all that. And, you know, she says, yeah, I haven't suffered since that day. It's the funniest thing. You know, I'm so happy now. And it's like 30 years ago or something like that. Yeah. And Oprah's like, really? Haven't suffered at all. She's like, haven't suffered. Like, what would you guess, you know? And she's like, so free. And she goes, even when your mother died, you didn't suffer. She's like, didn't suffer. And Oprah's like, well, I mean, how could you not suffer? Isn't that wrong not to suffer when a loved one dies? I mean, most people would say it's, you know, you should feel sad. And Byron Katie is just kind of like bursting with joy and kind of like interrupts her. And she goes, oh, Oprah, there's so much love in my heart. There's no room for it. And I just went, oh, like it just grabbed me. Cause it's like, that's the highest truth. Like to be so free that I'm not going to dangle off the cliff with you. Like, how is that helping you? Like, I'm going to be the one who pulls you up off the cliff edge. And that's what love does. Like love loves too much to suffer. Love has to be what it is. Mm. That's so cool. Love loves too much to suffer. That's what love is. I often quote that uh, interview with Oprah, often with Byron Katie, because Byron Katie's one of my favorite teachers on the planet i just love her and when oprah asks her so you mean to say you haven't because at the time it was 25 years and i think it's like 35 years that she's been doing it now she's like you mean to say you haven't suffered for 25 years she said no she said you mean to say you haven't had a stressful thought in you know or an angry thought in 25 years and and this is the part i love byron says no i've had millions of them (laughs) she said i just don't believe them yeah i question them yeah you have to believe them to suffer right right you have to believe them to suffer so you can have a stressful thought like i'm not good enough and i'm sad and i'm and then you can go no i'm not (laughs) (laughs) 
who who's feeling that do you know her um i don't know what interview this is but she's being asked about um her one of her kids um might have been suicidal or something like that i can't remember but she had this thought occur to her she was worried about her child oh i need to go like save her and this and that and she's feeling a stressful thought arise so she questions it questions the thought and she always comes back to like just like hardline reality like what's actually true now in this moment and she just reduces it down to that and she goes um i was just left with woman sitting in chair that's it that's reality it's like i'm so happy i'm so free woman sitting in chair <laughs> so i'll be like man in shower like, <laughs> <questioning> thoughts <laughs> is there anything that you're suffering over at all Aaron, or are you like byron i i sort of try to be like byron but i find myself not you know yeah that's a great question it's harder and harder to answer that question because awareness just works automatically uh, at a, you know no one's doing awareness it just it's awareness and as it expands in you, it just catches thoughts quicker. So through my self-inquiry, especially, and just lots of contemplation, um, awareness has expanded to the point that when suffering does happen, a painful emotion arises. It's so, um, it seems like such an intruder upon my peace that there's just this immediate like questioning of it. And where is this coming from? Who believes this? And so like, there's moments where the uncomfortable feelings are there, but the awareness just meets it so quickly that it dissolves pretty quickly. Cause my basic practice is like, at some point I just accepted my true nature is freedom. My mind's not going to agree with me on that. I have to just accept it myself and live as if I am free, which means anytime I suffer, it should be like, Whoa, what is this? This is super bizarre. Who, who believes this thought? Like I am perfect. I want nothing. And through that practice, suffering does become more and more strange. And like, this is not right. Something's way out of alignment here. And then awareness just goes to work sorting it out. So it's like, um, yeah, but no, at the same time, it's kind of funny like that. <laughs> I feel so blessed that you took the time to come and talk to my little tribe. It's been so wonderful. Thank oh, you so, so much. much. Thank yeah. you guys for having me. We love you, don't we? We're all big fans. We're all big fans. And I think that I introduced all of them to you. I think I found you. I don't know. Did somebody? Yes, yes, yes. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Erin. It's just been wonderful. And I look forward to connecting again one day. Yeah. Uh, and see. Well, you're one of my favorite people to talk with, Karen. Oh, thank you. You're one of mine too. <laughs> thank yeah. you, Erin. Thank you, guys. Appreciate all your questions. Yeah. Thank you, Erin. everything. Be well. Thank you. So Thank much you love to you guys. Take care. <laughs> Thank you so much. Love you all. Bye -bye. Thank you, everybody, for being you and being amazing. Hi, Karen. Love you. Love, love you. Love you. Love you. Have a good time, Karen. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Ciao.